0: Today on the Matt Wall Show, we talk about lies, damned lies, and studies. The left tells us to follow the science, but often manipulates, quote, the science to fabricate the desired result. That's certainly the case with a new study proving, quote, unquote, that gender reassignment surgery is a wonderful thing for children. We'll talk about that. Also, some students in Virginia walk out in protest against policies that make them safer and protect their privacy. Don Lemon embarrasses himself gloriously yet again on camera. And people seem to be very concerned about a sex scandal involving something called the Try Guys. In our daily cancellation, um, Gen Z has found a new way to rebrand laziness. We'll talk about all that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe is a huge, albeit long overdue, step in the right direction, but there's still a long way to go to get rid of, uh, of abortion in our country. We've got a long fight still to fight. Many companies are bowing to the woke mob, unfortunately, by donating to pro-choice causes and candidates are reimbursing their employees' travel expenses so that uh, if they live and work in a pro-life state, they can travel to a pro-abortion state, get an abortion, be back at work on Monday. Well, what if I told you that if you're currently on a phone plan with one or more major carriers, You might be supporting these companies and their pro-abortion agendas with your monthly phone bill. Don't let abortionists use your money to fund policies you don't believe in. Switch to Charity Mobile instead. Charity Mobile is a pro-life, pro-family cell phone company that sends 5% of your monthly plan price to the pro-life charity of your choice. You don't have to compromise on values or good phone service for that matter. Charity Mobile offers the latest 5G phones, no device or service contracts, great nationwide coverage, and live customer service based right here in the USA. The fight for the right to life continues, and pro-life causes need your support more than ever. You can help by sw- simply switching your phone service to Charity Mobile today. Call one 474 3662 or chat with them online at charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh to redeem a free cell phone. That's charitymobile.com and mention offer code Walsh. Well, there are many ways to lie, to tell a lie in the modern world, but few methods are more effective than the lie told through an allegedly scientific study. People these days are obsessed with studies. Every argument online devolves into a food fight with each side flinging studies at each other. And the great thing is that no matter the topic and no matter what opinion you hold about that topic, you can always find a study that supports what you already believed. That's what's so fantastic about it. Um, This is what research usually entails. When a person claims to have researched a topic and they start claiming that you should do your research, I've done my research. But what they really mean is they... They went to Google, they typed in their opinion into the search bar and then the word study, and then they accepted as a fact whatever results popped up first. I mean, nobody actually reads the studies. Nobody even reads the abstract or a few lines of the introduction. They probably don't know that studies have abstracts or introductions. They don't even know what a study is exactly. All they need is a media headline about the study. And they will, of course, immediately discard any headlines about studies that came to the opposite conclusion from the one they wanted. So they could sift through uh, 10 different headlines and nine of them are talking about studies that, uh, that contradict, sh- contradict them. And they'll, they'll, they'll zone in on that one study that confirms what they're saying and then that's all the proof they need. They just need that one headline about one study and that's enough for them to consider their entire viewpoint vindicated. And now they can accuse everyone who disagrees with them of not doing their research and not following the science. What they don't realize, and probably wouldn't care if they did realize, is that a huge number of studies are, to put it scientifically, um, bullcrap. Very often, studies that arrive at positive conclusions about a certain thing or a certain practice are funded by companies that produce the thing or engage in the practice. And no matter who funds the study, there is no law or legal policy requiring that the supposed researchers conducting the study actually follow anything resembling the scientific process anyone can call anything a study. A few years ago, I've mentioned this before, there's a nine-year-old boy conducted an informal survey of a few plastic straw manufacturers and arrived at the conclusion based on his estimate from these conversations that Americans use 500 million plastic straws a day. And the media trumpeted it as as a study proving that Americans use 500 million plastic straws a day. And that study, which mostly consisted of a fourth grader making up statistics for a school project, was used to pass legislation across the country banning plastic straws. Every time you go to a restaurant now and you use a a paper straw that dissolves in your soda within 30 seconds, um, well, it's because of this study, which was not really a study at all. But this is how studies work. And the other thing you often notice about them, they tend to arrive at the most convenient times. Which brings us to this headline from, from CBS News. This was published last night. Quote, top surgery drastically improves quality of life for young transgender people. Study finds. Wow. Now, I mean, that is great timing for the left, isn't it? The practice of performing double mastectomies on minors has come under intense scrutiny. We're working on a legislation to ban it in this state. And what do you know? Turns out that um, studies prove that a girl's physical well-being can be greatly improved by cutting her breasts off. Just like that. I mean, they needed a study. They didn't have one. They needed one. And there you go. They have it. Wow. CBS reports, quote, the quality of life of young transmasculine people dramatically improves after receiving top surgery, a mastectomy procedure that removes breast tissue, according to a study by Northwestern Medicine. The study published in the peer-reviewed journal JAMA Pediatrics on Monday is the first to show that top surgery is, quote, associated with significant improvement in chest dysphoria, gender congruence, and body image in transmasculine and non-binary teens and young adults. The study compared two groups of patients ranging in ages from 14 to 24. Quote, when we compared the outcomes of patients who received gender-affirming top surgery to those who did not, we recognize that surgery significantly improved the quality of life for patients, said Dr. Sumanas Jordan, who's the director of the Gender Pathways Program at Northwestern Medicine. Wait a second, but I've, I've I've been reliably informed that children aren't undergoing gender reassignment surgeries. How could they have studied patients ranging in ages down to 14? I thought that wasn't happening. Oh, well, it's because the left has now made the official and inevitable transition from That thing isn't happening to, okay, that thing is happening, but it's good. It's certainly a suspicious move, but I mean, if the science proves that removing the healthy breasts of 14-year-old girls is good, who am I to disagree? The science has spoken, hasn't it? Well, no, not at all, not even a little. So let's now dive into this, because this story offers, I think, kind of a clinic in how to deceive in the form of a study. Now, if you look beyond the headline, you don't, even look, you don't have to look that far beyond the headline, but if you look just, just right beyond the headline, there are a few glaring issues which jump out right away. First of all, once again, always look at who is funding the study. In this case, the study was conducted by the Gender Pathways Program at Northwestern Medicine. As it happens, funny enough, Northwestern Medicine performs top surgeries. So they did a study to find out if the thing they're already doing and making millions of dollars from is good. And what do you know? They found out that it is, in fact, good. That's a result so convenient for them that it's almost like they would specifically engineer the result in order to justify what they're already doing and profiting from. And that's exactly what they did, as it turns out. So the study tracks 36 surgical patients and then 34 control group patients, all from the same metropolitan region. We'll have more on the control group in just a moment, but once again, already we know that this is bunk and we haven't even gotten to the worst part yet, but we know that because you cannot arrive at any truly scientific and generally applicable conclusion based on a selection of 36 test subjects, all from the same area and the same general socioeconomic background. Yet, as mentioned, that's not the worst of it. The researchers here, and by researchers, I mean people in the business of engaging in the very practice they're studying, followed up with the the surgical patients. They followed up three months after surgery. Three months. So based on self-reported data from the patient, three months post-op, they've concluded that transition regret is basically not, that doesn't happen. It's not a real concern. But, but obviously, regret doesn't generally set in after just three months. Regret hits, uh, usually hits its peak years after the fact, five, seven, ten years later. For children especially, the question is not how they're going to feel about it several weeks later. Okay, I don't need to know uh, a girl who gets uh, top surgery, quote-unquote, at 14. I'm not as curious about how she feels about it when she's 14 and a half. Okay, I want to know how she's going to feel about it when she's 19, or when she's 24, or when she's 30. Okay, how will the adult version of her feel about the decision made by the child version? That's the question that I'm wondering. You cannot accurately measure regret from any serious life decision three months after the decision was made. That's the honeymoon period, okay? That's when the forces of self-delusion are at their strongest. When you've done something, you've made a decision that's going to impact the rest of your life, three months later, you're still in the mode of, uh, of, of convincing yourself that it was the right thing to do. The regret comes after you've gotten past the self-delusion and you've gotten to the point, you know, you, you, you've, you've uh, uh, conjured up the courage to actually confront what you did and to say this was the wrong thing. It doesn't happen after three months. That's exactly why they cut the study off precisely at that point. They had to decide what point to cut it off, and they chose three months. Because they knew that if they chose even six months or a year, the results would be very different. This is to say nothing of the fundamental problem with self-reported data in a study like this. The people involved, they know why the question is being asked. That's the other thing you have to ask in a study is, is, is this a blind study? Okay, blind study is the people involved in the study, the, 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 uh, the subjects, uh, they don't know what they're doing or what the study is about or why they're there. If it's not a blind study and the people know why you're asking the question, then that's going to skew the results. They know that if they say they feel regret, it will be used to fuel what they perceive as, quote, transphobic talking points. So they have no incentive to be honest and every incentive to paint a rosy picture. What about the control group? Well, that consisted of 36 dysphoric girls who did not get surgery but still received gender-affirming care, quote-unquote. What that means is that every member of the control group was on the path and in the system that promotes surgery. So if they're asked whether they'd be happier with surgery, it's no wonder they'd say yes. A true control group would be gender-confused girls who received counseling to help them accept and love their female bodies. Because that's the true alternative that they should be testing against. But the faux researchers here ruled out that possibility from the beginning. Now, I haven't even told you the best part. Uh, You will find, if you read it, buried deep within the bowels of this fake study, the begrudging admission that 11 participants were not counted in the final result because they were lost to attrition. What does that mean? Well, it means they dropped out and they stopped responding. Now, why would participants drop out of a study like this midway through? Why would they stop responding? Especially if they felt great about what they did, why wouldn't they respond? Could it be that they regretted the surgery and were too embarrassed to talk about it? Or else, as mentioned, they didn't want to say anything that would give ammo to the other side? Is that what happened here? We can't say. The researchers didn't seem very curious, curious enough to find out, so we don't know. But let's just make a a very conservative estimate, let's say, that just about half, let's say six of the participants who were lost to attrition would have, if they responded, maybe had less than positive things to say about the procedure. Well, if that's true, that would mean that even with the deck stacked absurdly in favor of surgery with the way the study was conducted, still 15% of these double mastectomy victims regretted it almost immediately. How might that number change if you check back in a year, two years, or five, or ten? Again, we can't know for sure, but we can use our common sense. In fact, Northwestern Medicine has been doing top surgeries for more than three months, I'm pretty sure. So they themselves could have followed up with surgery patients a year out, two years out, three years. I mean, they probably already have done that. But they didn't do that for this study. And we can make an educated guess as to why. It's because they know what they're going to hear. And it won't be what they want us to hear. But there are lessons here that go beyond the gender transition racket. This, as we said at the top, is, is how lies are told in the modern world. So when you hear about what the science has declared, it has often been declared this way through cheap tricks and cherry picking. It can be very difficult to sort through all of this. We are bombarded by information all the time, some of it good, much of it garbage, but it comes constantly to us every day. The propagandists are counting on us being too weary, too exhausted, too overwhelmed to apply our critical thinking capacities to what they say. That is basically the bet they're making. And it's up to us to make sure that it's a a bad bet. Now let's get to our five headlines. Inside every progressive is a totalitarian screaming to get out, and the team at Front Page Magazine has been unmasking these totalitarians since the earliest days of the internet. Founded by David Horowitz, a former leftist who ultimately became an enemy of the left and a best-selling author, Front Page Magazine has spent over two decades combating the radical left's efforts to destroy America. Their two new podcasts you have to check out are The Right Take with Mark Tapson and The Jason Hill Show. They offer riveting interviews and an insightful um, insights into uh, politics, culture, and current events. The Right Take with Mark Tapson offers fascinating in-depth cultural commentary as well as interviews with well-known conservative thinkers like Heather McDonald, Michael Walsh, and Mary Graber. The Jason Hill Show offers thoughtful deep dives about the ideologies of the radical left and interviews with renowned intellectuals like uh, Peter Wood and Bruce Gilley. It takes a village to combat the radical left's efforts to destroy America. That's why, as a fan of my show, you should also check out these guys over at Front Page Magazine by visiting frontpagemag.com. And while you're there, support their cause by making a tax-deductible donation. Inside every progressive is a totalitarian screaming to get out, and no one understands that better than the team at Front Page Magazine. So go check out frontpagemag.com today. Uh, Before I get to the first headline, this is, uh, I I think, something I want to read to you because it's very relevant to what we just talked about. You know, I, I said, well, we know what allegedly some of these top surgery, the double mastectomy victims... And that is, by the way, we should start calling them victims, not patients. So we know what the victims say, some of them anyway, three months after the fact. What do they say a couple of years later? Well, uh, Billboard Chris on Twitter is an activist that has been traveling around the country to expose uh, gender ideology and doing fantastic work. He posted a couple of things to Twitter yesterday uh, from the DTrans Reddit forum, where you hear you hear the testimony of of girls who have been through this, who have been subjected to this, who have been victimized by it. And their stories are just, words escape you to describe it. I mean, to call it tragic is, is to understate the case. So let me read a couple of these to you. Um, here's one. This is someone who's 17. Here's what she says. I hate my voice. Every time I open my effing mouth, I sound like a freak. I've ruined my life with my stupid decisions I made as a kid. The doctors ruined my life by allowing a barely functioning, mentally ill child with severe OCD and then undiagnosed BPD to go on hormones that would completely change my body. I can manage to get the pitch of my voice up relatively decently to the point where it's always in the androgynous or low female range on a vocal pitch app. But there's always something that seems off. It never sounds female, always like a very high-pitched, stereotypical gay male voice or a male trying to force a female voice and failing. I'm tempted to just stop talking altogether. In my worst moments, all I want to do is tear out my vocal cords and be done with it. I've been on T for about two years as testosterone. Although it was relatively sporadic and it wasn't very consistent with either the gel or the shots at all, I've only just managed to get off the hormones now as the shots I was on were were, were every three months. Thankfully, not a lot else changed while on testosterone. No facial hair, no facial changes, and I never went through with any surgeries. I'm still only 17. I've tried watching YouTube videos like trans voice lessons and absolutely nothing in the the videos makes any sense, and I don't find them helpful in the slightest. I'm legitimately suicidal because of the decisions I made as a kid. It's all my fault. I don't know how how long I can keep doing this. Well, it's not her fault at all. Of course, this is what the kids are left with, they're they're left to feel like it is their fault, when it is entirely the fault of the doctors and the parents who allowed this to happen. Entirely their fault, 100%. And this, by the way, this is, there's no surgery here. This is just, quote, just from the testosterone, which we're assured is reversible. It's not irreversible. So this is what a child goes through after changing her voice. Now, what happens when they go further than that? This is another one. This is from uh, another user on the dtrans Reddit forum. I'm a 17-year-old girl with a flat chest, a deep voice, a visible Adam's apple, and some facial hair. There's no reason for me to continue to live. I destroyed my life, and I feel like all I have is stupid for me to have. All the hope I have is stupid for me to have. I don't think any person will ever want to date me. Before all this, people were into me, but I destroyed that. Now, no one is ever going to like me. There's nothing I can really do without getting reminded of my past and how much I miss it. I feel ashamed of what I did. I'm scared that people will never let me do decisions on my own anymore. I was just a kid and I would have needed someone to help me accept myself, but my therapist didn't question my transness. I can't stop thinking about the life I could have had. I also think other people will now believe that there's something better than me. I love my mom, she's an amazing mom. She stopped me the first time from transitioning, but the second time she was also brainwashed and sadly, thought that when all these professionals say it's the right thing to let your kid transition, then it must be the right thing. She thinks it's all her fault, but it isn't. I wanna kill myself, but then she'll feel even more miserable. How can I kill myself and let her know that I, I want her to be happy? I'm 17, why do I have to think about ending my life? It's too much for me to handle. There's no joy in my life anymore. So this is a this child is 17 years old and got the surgery. There's another uh, post where she talks about how she got the surgery when she was 14. This is three years later, and we don't know exactly based on this when the regret started to set in, but three years later. So you follow up three years later, still childhood, and this is what you find. As I said, words uh, cannot quite do justice to the enormity of of the evil here, the, the depths of the evil. The people who are pushing this and promoting it are, as I have said many times, and I and I believe with every fiber of my being, these are among the worst human beings. The ones who are pushing it and promoting it and doing it, two kids, are among the worst human beings who have ever lived on the planet. I mean, they, they belong in the same category. The Nazi comparisons and all the rest of it are tired and overplayed, but but they belong right in that category. In the category of the most monstrous uh, demons to have ever walked the face of the earth. And there are a lot of other things that we talk about you know, in our society, a lot of other issues we deal with, other issues that I talk about all the time and that we'll talk about today on the show. But I can tell you right now, and I'm not going to be around to say I told you so, but uh, history books in the future. Like this is the only thing they're going to be worried about. With Our whole era of history in Western civilization will be defined by this. They will be writing books and history books focused almost entirely on this. Okay, It's like when history books talk about the 1860s in, in the United States. It's, there are other things that happen besides the Civil War, but the Civil War is the only thing the history books are concerned about in the 1860s. Well, when the, when the history books tell of uh, the 2010s and the 2020s, this is what that chapter is going to be about. And there are going to be debates raging among historians for centuries to come, just trying to figure out how could this have happened. They'll be baffled by it. Like, how could this have happened? How did, how did anyone allow it to happen? And I'm living through it. And I'm asking the same question. So this month, Governor Yunkin in Virginia instituted policies of Virginia schools. Uh, These are very simple, common-sense policies. Uh, Like, you know, the left talks about common-sense gun reform. It's not really common-sense at all. But in this case, these really are common-sense reforms, if you will. Uh, And the rules stipulate that everyone can use only bathrooms and locker rooms that align with their biological sex, and also that a child's gender identity, quote-unquote, cannot be concealed from the parents. So the rules don't even say that a child can't identify as whatever they want to identify in school, the rules only say, the policy only says that the parents have a right to know what's going on with their kid in school. You You can't conceal that from the parents. So that's it. That's the rule. In other words, the rule puts Virginia schools in line with the rules that were in every school that's ever existed up until nine minutes ago. But that led to this as reported by NBC News. Students across Virginia protested Tuesday in response to New guidelines putting restrictions on transgender students in the state's public schools. Uh, It's actually not true at all. There are no restrictions at all. The, 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 The policies are the same for everyone. Use the bathroom that aligns with your sex. Parents can know what's happening with their kids. So there are no special restrictions being put on anyone. It's the same restrictions for everyone. Uh, walkouts are set to take place throughout the day at more than 90 middle and high schools in the state, according to the student-run advocacy group Pride Liberation Project, which organized the statewide effort. Yeah, I'm sure that's really student-run, organizing a statewide effort. Um, there's no in- adult influence there at all, is there? As of uh, noon on Tuesday, students in Woodbridge, Springf- Springfield, Manassas, and other Virginia cities were waving rainbow picket signs and shouting trans rights or human rights. Now, The left, of course, is making a big deal out of the walkouts as if it proves something. And it does prove something. First of all, it proves that kids will take advantage of any opportunity to miss class, which is understandable from a kid's perspective. And also that the peer pressure to go along with this is immense. I mean, if if kids are walking out and you're one of the kids who doesn't, then now you've just outed yourself as a quote-unquote transphobe. So you have to be out there. And also it shows that kids have been sufficiently brainwashed so that even some of these girls, many of them probably, who go to these schools will protest against policies that grant them safety and respect. Okay, So they they are protesting against their own dignity and safety because they're kids. They don't know any better. One such student was interviewed on uh, cable news. This is on MSNBC, and let's listen to a little bit of that.
1: Tell us about these walkouts today. Do you think they delivered the message that you wanted them to send?
2: I think looking at social media, looking across the press that we've received today, I really think that we got the message across that we wanted to, which is Virginia students are not behind these proposed guidelines.
1: Governor Youngkin's team uh, has, is telling NBC News in a statement, partly, that when parents are part of the process, schools will accommodate the requests of children and their families, adding parents should be a part of their children's lives. I wonder how you'd respond to that.
2: Of course, these proposed regulations are not about parental rights. If they really were about parental rights, then Governor Yunkin would be looking at things like expanding access to democracy in Virginia. This isn't about parental rights. This is about attacking Virginia students we also hear that Governor Yunkin doesn't think that students understand how harmful these policies can be. Countless students in Virginia have read these policies and understand that the real implications are not to protect the rights of parents, but instead to deny our identity, our humanity and our very existence.
0: You know, I actually feel sorry for this girl. Uh, of course I do, because she's just a kid. She's in high school, so she's, I don't know, maybe five or six years older than than my own kids at most. Um, and unlike what you hear maybe from some older leftists, especially elected Democrats who are going on and on about trans rights, and they don't believe anything they're saying, she believes it. She totally believes it. Now, she might be repeating lines that she's been given, that's for sure, but she still basically believes it. To the extent that she understands what she's saying, she does believe it. Denying uh, the right to exist, denying our right to exist. What? But your existence is... Negated by having to use a bathroom that the, the same bathroom policy that every human on Earth has followed. Your existence is threatened by that. How? Well, she's a kid. She's not thinking it through. But it, it, it you know, the, the fact it doesn't make any sense doesn't matter. You, know, you indoctrinate kids into this at a, at a at a stage when they don't really have critical thinking. Faculties, uh, certainly not fully developed ones. And so they're not—they're actually not capable of thinking through all this stuff. And if the left has their way, they'll—they'll they'll never be capable of it. Speaking of someone who doesn't have critical thinking skills, this is another great moment on CNN. It's almost as good as that lady giving Don Lemon a lesson about the history of slavery, which one of one of my favorite all-time cable news clips was from a couple weeks ago. If you remember, uh, this is maybe not quite that good, but it's it, this is still great stuff. So here is um, Don Lemon uh, reporting on the hurricane and trying to get his guest to make it a lecture on climate change. And the guest is just not having it. Let's watch.
3: Can you tell us what this is and what effect the climate change has on this phenomenon? Well, we can come back and talk about climate change at a later time. I want to focus on the here and now. We think the rapid intensification is probably almost done. There could be a little bit more intensification as it's still over the warm waters of the uh, eastern Gulf of Mexico. But I don't think we're going to get any more rapid intensification. If you look here, you can actually see, pretty interesting for your viewers, you can actually see a second eye wall forming around the inner eye wall, and that's basically the second eye wall has overtaken the original eye wall, and that should arrest development. Uh, so, listen, I just, I'm just trying to get that you said you want to talk about climate change, but what, what effect does climate change have on this phenomenon that, that is happening now? Because it seems these storms are intensifying. That's the question. Here. I don't think you can link climate change to any one event. Okay. On the whole, on the cumulative, uh, climate change uh, may be making storms worse, uh, but uh, to link it to any one event, um, I, I would caution against that. Okay. Well, based, uh, listen, I grew up there, and these storms are intensifying. Something is causing them to in- intensify. <laughs> uh,
0: he just can't. I mean, his job is on the line, and he's uh, just can't stop embarrassing himself. And I, I, I love that. Of course, what you just heard there is, is, is the case. Like. Uh, first of all, when, when, we're dealing, when, when a hurricane is bearing down on us or bearing down on Florida, um, conversations about climate change are abstract and academic and totally useless. Okay, they're not going to do anything for us right now. Even if it's true that, that, that climate change, like you driving your car to work, actually caused you yourself during your commute, you, you scumbag, you villain, you have caused this hurricane. Even if that was true, that doesn't do anything for us now. Okay, now we got to deal with just like the, the reality of this hurricane. How do we respond to it? And that's what he's trying to talk about. But Don Lemon wants to take it in the other direction. But of course, as he points out, that's not true. You can't, at most, when it comes to climate change, you can talk in, in general, broad strokes. You can't take one specific event and just declare that this is happening because of climate change. So what you're saying is that if not for um, alleged man-made climate change, this hurricane wouldn't exist or it wouldn't be as serious, like this specific hurricane would not be happening or wouldn't be as serious if not for people driving their cars to work. How could you possibly know that? Even based on the left's own logic, you could accept everything they tell you about climate change. Just accept it uncritically, which you shouldn't, by the way, as we've already gone over, you shouldn't accept uncritically anything they say ever about anything. But um, even if you did, it's, you still can't draw the connection to one specific event. And we know that because hurricanes, I, I keep saying it until I get blue in the face, but it, hurricanes have always happened. And you can, now Don Lemon might say, oh, well, I grew up in Florida. I remember. But hurricanes have gotten more serious. That's an, yeah, there's some anecdotal data. Uh, okay, well, Don Lemon was experienced some hurricanes and he knows that these are worse. Well, if you're doing the anecdotal thing, I mean, I've, I've never lived uh, in, a, in a hurricane-prone area, but I have been watching, unfortunately, cable news since I was a, a, a child. And what I know is that the media, every single hurricane season, has said that it's the worst season ever and that every hurricane is a monster. It's the worst thing that's ever going to happen, and then sometimes it actually pans out in the hurricane. Like this, that might well be. Looks like that's going to be the case with this one. The hurricane actually is as bad as they say. But 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 I know the media says that about every hurricane and every hurricane season, and that's been the case for as long as I can remember. So there's my anecdote in competition with uh, with Don Lemons. You can also go. It doesn't take long to go. You you can, you can go online and look up uh, deadliest hurricanes in history, worst hurricanes, most serious hurricanes, and you're going to find uh dates going back to the, like the 1600s. Of course when you when you start going farther and farther back, it's there, there aren't as many records. So how do we even know like if if uh, if the worst hurricane in history hit Florida in let's say the year I don't know 1307, how would we know that? There wasn't there were people around but there weren't people around, Uh, keeping reliable historical records about these things, measuring wind gusts and everything. They didn't have satellite data, certainly. So how do we even know it? It's one of the problems you run into when you start making declarations about This is the worst weather event in history. How How could you possibly know that when there have been serious weather events occurring on the face of the earth for billions of years and we've only been keeping records of them for I mean, comparatively, we've basically been keeping records, reliable records, for, uh, for five seconds in comparison to the whole history of humanity and certainly of the, of the Earth itself. That's the problem. Uh, not that it, Don Lemon really sees it as a problem. Daily Wire has this report. Oregon has spent more than $300 million on services for drug addicts, but experts are warning lawmakers that the state's efforts are not working. Since Oregon uh, effectively decriminalized drugs in 2020, the state has poured about $302 million into addiction and social services for addicts, but the overdose rate, death rate, rather, has only risen, largely driven by the influx of fentanyl. Last week, the uh, Oregon Health Authority, OHA, announced that it had finally awarded the $302 million to nonprofits working to combat addiction. The funding was the first round of grants awarded under Oregon's drug decriminalization law, Measure 110 which decriminalized possession of small amounts of most hard drugs, including cocaine, uh, heroin, LSD, and methamphetamine. The law's grant program uses tax dollars from marijuana sales for addiction services. The grant money goes to pay for services not covered by Medicaid, such as outreach, peer mentors, housing, and clean needles for intravenous drug use. So that's part of what's happening here is we're actually, in order to uh, help with drug secession, help people get over their drug addiction, uh, in Oregon anyway, and in other states as well, they're facilitating drug abuse. They're making drug abuse easier, easier, making it easier to access drug paraphernalia so that they can engage in drug use. I, I will say this is one thing that I've been wrong about. It's not often that I say that on this show, but I, I've never been a proponent of decriminalize, decriminalizing all drugs. I've never said we should decriminalize heroin and methamphetamine. I've always recognized that as insane. But I did go through a period, I mean, up until recently, where I said that, you know, we, we, we probably should just make pot legal or at least decriminalize it. And I had all the standard arguments for it, um, the cost of enforcement, the fact that pot arguably isn't much more physically dangerous than alcohol, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All those arguments you're familiar with, many of which you've probably made yourself. But I, I, I've since come to realize and that, for me, was a change. I used to be able to ban all drugs, and I said, oh, well, marijuana, okay, I can see the argument. Now I'm, now I'm going back to, I, I think you just got to ban all this stuff. Ban it all. Um, we've seen what happens. We, we were promised certain results from decriminalizing drugs, whether it's all drugs or just certain drugs, whatever it is. We were promised certain results, and those results simply have not come about. I mean, has the drug abuse problem gotten any better in any city or any state where they've decriminalized any of these drugs? The only changes I can tell in a lot of cities anyway, is you can't walk down the street without smell. You smell marijuana everywhere. Like, everybody is high all the time in public in a lot of these cities. And then uh, the drug abuse problem for many of the harder drugs has only gotten worse. Is that because we decriminalized marijuana? Well, may, there might not be a direct connection. I think there's a, there's probably... A connection, but it might not be one directly led to the other. And you could point out that we were that we were trending in this direction with um, the drug abuse, drug, drug overdose epidemic before marijuana was was decriminalized. But even so, we, we were made certain promises. And many of these issues were blamed, at least in part, on drug prohibition. Well, you lift drug prohibition and the problems only get worse. Why is that? Well, I I think because what we're learning is that people who are addicted to drugs will remain addicted, whether it's legal or not. Uh, All we can decide as a society is whether we will strongly stigmatize and punish this behavior or not. And is it better to be in a society that stigmatizes drug use or is it better to be in one that just opens up the door and says, "Eh, do whatever you want? Well, you could stigmatize it and, and criminalize it. You're not going to get rid of it. We all understand that. But is it better to live in a society where people are just literally laying on the sidewalk, using drugs, passing out, overdosing? So you wa- Walking through a city means you have to step over the bodies of uh, people who've OD'd on God knows what? Is, is that an improvement? I mean, that, that is what it looks like we've discovered when you get rid of the stigma and you also get rid of the legal penalties on these drugs. Seems like a massive mistake to me. Here's a clip of um, Mayor Eric Adams in New York trying to, I guess, elevate his own city and state by putting down others. Classic bully move, I guess. Here he is.
3: We have a brand. New York has a brand. And when people see it, It means something. You know, when we go there, it's not, Kansas doesn't have a brand. (laughs) (laughs) When you go there, okay, you're from Kansas. (laughs) No. (laughs) Well, you know what? (laughs) You
0: know, I, I didn't think it was possible. I really didn't think it was possible that, and I was wrong about this too. I didn't think it'd be possible for New York to elect a mayor who's a bigger douchebag than Bill de Blasio. Like it, it just didn't seem possible. I mean, he, he was he was the Uber douchebag. He was like, you you couldn't get more than him. And then and now we have Eric Adams, who who's given him a run for his money. Now, Eric Adams, he's not as sort of lumbering and goofy. He doesn't, he doesn't look like Gumby had a baby with Rex Ryan like uh, like Bill de Blasio does, but he's 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 really up there as far as being a tool. New York has a brand. I agree. By the way, New York does have a brand. The brand is uh, here's New York's brand: unlivable, overpriced, hole. That's that's New York's brand. And part of the brand is everyone who lives there is super proud of how terrible it is, and uh, and, and feels that it's, it's it's very special. It's it's part of the culture. What is your culture? Dirt and rats and feces all over the all over the sidewalk. People overdosing on drugs, crime, it's gray and grimy and it smells, but we have restaurants and little cute little stores we can go shop in. Okay, yeah, so you you have convenience as a consumer is what you have. That's your brand. Your brand is that there are a lot of brands all around trying to sell you things. Walk down Times Square, brands everywhere. Now, New York doesn't have a brand. It has a lot of different brands competing for your attention. Who, who wants to even live in a place that has a brand, whatever that means? That's actually the, the advantage of living in Kansas. Now, um, so I'm not exactly sure what it means for a place to have a brand. I do know what it means for a place to have a kind of a, a personality, a culture. I know you go out into Kansas and people are very nice, for one thing. You can find great barbecue um and there's also space like, there's actual space and that, that that's part of the advantage of living somewhere that isn't in the city so you you don't have you, you don't have a brand you can actually you can be you can like raise a family and 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 have your own sort of identity as a family and you're not being constantly crowded by a million other people that's the advantage you can live your own life which is what people in Kansas want to do All right, one other thing here. Let's see. Uh, This is from page six. It says, popular YouTube group, The Try Guys, fired its member, Ned Fulmer, as he admitted to cheating on his wife, Ariel Fulmer. The group's Instagram page said, Ned Fulmer is no longer working with The Try Guys. Um, As a result of a thorough internal review, we do not see a path forward. We thank you for your support as we navigate this change. Less than an hour later, Ned35 addressed the news on his personal Instagram account. He said, uh, family should have always been my priority, but I lost focus and had a consensual workplace relationship. I'm sorry for any pain my actions have caused to the guys and the fans, but most of all to Ariel. So there's the news on the Try Guys, and this comes on the heels of news about uh, Dude Perfect, the YouTube page, Dude Perfect, and they're going to be building, it's, it's positive news, they're, they're apparently building an actual stadium. So the YouTube channel Dude Perfect is building a stadium for themselves, apparently. And I read that headline a couple of days ago. And these two stories together raise the question, who the hell are any of these people? I've never heard of either of them until this week. And they're trending all over social media. Everyone's talking about them. Um, I still don't understand exactly who they are or why or why anyone cares or what they do. But this kind of goes to show that, yes, I'm out of touch. Horribly so, I admit that. Also, though, it shows that there has been this, right, there's, it, 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 like, every week, it's another YouTuber or TikTok person who's all over the headlines and trending. People are talking about them, And then I, along with the other old fogies among us, I look at them and I say, who, I don't know, who, who are they and what even do they do? I, I, just, I don't know. At least when you hear about a, maybe a pop star or something you've never heard of, you re, it's like you haven't heard of this person, but you understand the concept of pop music. And so you know at least that's what they do and how they became famous. A lot of these people now. I don't. I'm not sure what they do. Um, part of that is this total fracturing and splintering of the culture, and I, we do take for granted. You know, we take for granted that kids will have different celebrities, different pop culture figures that they're into, and that that is relatively normal from a from a modern perspective. Anyway, you can go back to Elvis. You know, and back then uh, the kids were into Elvis, and the adults thought he that he was a harbinger of evil, and it kind of turns out that the adults were actually correct about that, because uh, when you take into account what pop music became over time, I think that they were basically right. But anyway, at least back then, the adults knew who Elvis was, even if they thought he was terrible. And when I was a kid in the 90s, um, the kids had their pop stars, like we had our pop stars. Um, and, and the adults didn't really follow it that closely, but they at least knew who the people were for the most part. And um, The adults in the 90s maybe were a little bit less clued in just because there were more pop culture figures to keep track of. But now you go another 20 or 30 years in the future and kids sort of exist in their own universe. They have their own landscape entirely, their own little bubble universe with their own celebrities and nobody even knows who these people are or what they do. Uh, There's very little shared culture from generation to generation. There's actually none at all, which, which is a problem. One other thought related to this, this is another scandal of a a famous person, apparently famous person, who is caught cheating, being unfaithful. Um, And this is something men are now getting in trouble for. Adam Levine, who is someone, at least I do know who that is, he's another one who got in trouble for that, for cheating. And, um, And that's fine with me, because I think that if you cheat, you commit adultery, you should be shamed publicly for that, especially if you're a famous person. You've kind of agreed to live your life on the public stage, whether you like it or not. Adultery is a terrible thing, and if people react to it accordingly, then that's 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 good. That's how we should react. But we can only shame them publicly if we're admitting that there is more to sexual morality than mere consent, right? Because as this guy, what's his name again, Ned, whatever, he says it was a consensual workplace relationship which is kind of a weird and creepy way to put it when you're describing an affair, but that's what he said. And it's true, it was a consensual relationship. Now, usually what we hear from the left and from the culture is, as long as it's consensual, it's fine. This was consensual for the two people involved, and it's not fine. And I agree that it's not fine because there's more to consent. Like, consent is baseline. Of course, you need to have consent in a sexual relationship. Otherwise, it's not a relationship at all. It's rape. Um, But that's not the end of it. Things like fidelity and loyalty and love and dignity, all of these things are important as well. And if you remove all of those, but you still have consent, it is a a disordered and bad thing. So I guess what I'm saying is I, I have kind of the moral framework, and maybe you have the moral framework to condemn guys who cheat on their wives, but a lot of these leftists especially who are making a big deal out of this, they don't have the framework for it unless they're going to admit that they were wrong about sexual morality this whole time. In which case, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to have them on board. Let's get now to the comment section. Who makes a
2: Twitter mob fly off the handle with rage?
0: Who's to blame? It's a sweet baby gang. Well, the left has proclaimed an all-out war on childhood. Having a will in place is the least you could do to protect your kids. A will gives you the power to decide who will raise your kids should something happen to you and your spouse. Without one, you know the state decides and we don't want that to happen. A will, it's all about protecting your legacy, protecting your finances, protecting your kids, ensuring that your medical decisions are honored when you're unable to see them through. Deciding who will take on the responsibility of raising your children or caring for a parent or a grandparent. A will may be your only opportunity to direct important family heirlooms, financial investments, and responsibilities to the proper people in your life. Plus, it's incredibly easy and affordable with Epic Will. Epic Will bundles your last will, living will, uh, healthcare power of attorney, HIPAA release, and durable financial power of attorney. It only costs $119 for a single person to create a will, and when you use promo code Walsh, you save an extra 10%, so it's even more affordable than that. Go to epicwill.com. Use promo code Walsh to save 10% on Epic Will's Complete Will Package. That's epicwill.com, promo code Walsh. First comment says, Matt, in response to the TikTok dating advice segment on Monday, I can vouch that hat-based relationships are strong. 23 years ago, my wife asked me about the ridiculous fisherman's hat I wore at the time. And we've been through the ups and downs of 19 years of marriage and four kids and now are stronger than ever. The hat, tattered and worn, now hangs on my 12-year-old son's bedpost. I think he keeps it because he senses that it's the rock our family is built on. Hey, uh, you know, the dating sites and, and uh, uh, you know, Tinder and everything not working for a lot of people. I hear the complaints all the time. It, was, it wouldn't work for me if I was still in the dating scene. Thank God I'm not. So maybe it's time to try some different t- try some different strategies. Wear a weird hat out in public and maybe someone will come up and ask you about it. It's a conversation starter. See, it worked for this guy. 23 years of marriage built on the foundation of a hat. Um, Doc says, Doc Bailey says, When I was a medical student at Vanderbilt a long, long time ago, if you saw residents postgraduate special training in the hospital parking lot, you could immediately tell if uh, he she was OBGYN. The OBGYN drove Cadillacs and other expensive cars, as the other residents drove crap cars because that's all they could afford. The OBGYNs had very lucrative side jobs as abortionists. So there's a long history of screw it, I'm here for the money at these institutions. There's a long history of that. There's also a long history which starts, well, maybe, maybe it doesn't start with abortion, but one of the worst manifestations is abortion, where you've got people in the medical field who maybe through, maybe often, you know, through their, throughout their day, they're, they actually are treating and helping people, which is what you're supposed to do in medicine. You're supposed to treat, help, cure. That's, that's all you're supposed to do. Do no harm. Um, and yet, through abortion, the objective is exactly the opposite. You're not treating anything. You, you, are, you are harming on purpose, which is a total inversion of the medical profession. Same thing with the quote-unquote gender affirmation procedures. JR says, Matt sounds like Cartman while trying to pronounce Latine in all of its goofball examples. Yeah, there's a little bit of a Cartman there, I guess. But, but that's that's gender. That's the new gender neutral. You don't want to see Latino or Latina. It's Latina. Latina. And the, the other thing I didn't even mention yesterday is just drop the last letter. If it's really this important to you, you could just say Latin. That 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 actually works. You know, if if it's so important to you to not have a a, a, a a to not signify a gender, then you don't need to add some other letter to the end. Just say Latin. Or, or Hispanic. Also gender neutral. There you go. Um, and Cotco uh, 5 says, Matt, reading off the job description for web developers, put a smile on my face. You know what? Reading a prompter is actually difficult. People don't realize this. Difficult for me anyway, as a moron. But if I write the, the, the stuff in the prompter, then I can read it. But if you're reading something that you didn't write and you don't really understand, it, it, it act, it's, it's, it's more difficult than anything. So that's why you know, I don't make fun of other people when they stumble on the prompter. Joe Biden, well, I guess I do all the time. And I'm not gonna stop. Well, there are two ways to absolutely stop the left in its tracks. The first is to point out their lunacy. The second is to take as much money away from them as possible. And if you're a regular listener to this show, you're already doing the former. If you made the decision to stop supporting Harry's Razors and go with Jeremy's, then you're doing both right now. But if you haven't heard yet, we've got a brand new incentive for you. It's the Jeremy's Razors Contest for the Car. Here's how it works. For every person you refer, whether they buy a Jeremy's Razors kit or a Daily Wire annual membership, you both you both get points in the race to win the God King's McLaren. If someone from the Sweet Baby Gang wins this thing, it would warm my heart. I will never drive a car like this because I'm driving a 12-passenger lunker all around. But if you win it, I would be very happy with that. Most of the top players haven't hit the 20-referral mark yet, so there's still plenty of time for the for you to jump in the race and also win it. To sign up and start competing, go to jeremysrazors.com play. The race for the car ends on November 1st, so get in the competition today. See terms and conditions for complete details at jeremysrazors.com slash referral terms. The program is open only to legal U.S. residents residing in the U.S. D.C., excluding residents of Colorado, Connecticut, Maryland, Puerto Rico, and U.S. territories and possessions 18 and older. Remember, friends don't let friends shave with woke razors. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. <laughs> So you've heard about quiet quitting, which is the new modern trend where employees essentially stop trying, but they remain on the job, attempting to sail by on minimal effort, doing the bare minimum. Um, This was a movement pioneered by Gen Z with a big assist from millennials who are always eager to join any trend, especially one that involves being lazy. Of course, I say the movement was pioneered by Gen Z, but they, in fact, did not invent laziness, though they are the only generation maybe narcissistic enough to think that they did. No, they invented the phrase and the hashtag. And the TikTok videos is promoting it. And now the makers of Quiet Quitting are back with a new hit called Hashtag Act Your Wage. This is another viral trend, which is essentially the same thing as Quiet Quitting, sort of taking the Marvel approach where the sequel is a carbon copy of the original. The Act Your Wage trend, which has taken off on TikTok, is apparently best explained by this viral video, which has millions of views from TikTok user Sarai Marie. Let's uh, take a look
1: do you even know how to do your job i don't understand what hey veronica i'm gonna have you take this home and work on it tonight okay respectfully susan i'd rather spend time with my family veronica did you just decline the zoom meeting that's at 6 30 tonight oh yeah i did i did do that yeah because it's outside of my working hours nine to five so i won't be attending All right, Veronica, I do need you to be available during your vacation, okay? (laughs) Susan, you'll be blocked on my vacation because I won't be answering. Okay, Veronica, I'm going to need you to complete all of this today. Susan, do I look like two people to you? No. Oh, okay. Just making sure because that looks like the work of two people, right? Right? And I'm one. I'm just one person, right? And it's time to go home, five o'clock. Hey, thank you, babe.
0: It would appear that uh, acting your wage means being so grating and annoying and shrill that you end up sitting alone in an empty corner of the office because everybody else has jumped out the window. Now, if you're still confused about what this movement is supposed to be, the New York Post has more details. Quote, the video is tagged Act Your Wage, a hashtag that has amassed 37.6 million views and counting on TikTok. It's part of a movement among young workers to only do what they're paid for and no more and to urge their co-workers to do the same. Proponents of Act Your Wage see it as setting a firm, healthy boundary in the workplace. Acting Your Wage might sound similar to quiet quitting, which became the biggest buzzword in the office as the summer came to an end, but there's a fine line between the two movements. Quote, motivation is the bridge between the two, but they're still two very different and separate constructs. Misha Ann Martin, head of people analytics at the software company WorkHuman, told the Post, in short, quiet quitters are doing the bare minimum and trying to get away with it, while the act your wagers are doing exactly what they're paid to do, not more and not less. So, I mean, they're all just a bunch of lazy bastards. In other words, For a real-world example of this phenomenon, um, not that anyone needs a real-world example of laziness. I think we all kind of get it. But Insider has an article about acting your wage, and it tells the story of a 22-year-old cashier named Claire. And this is kind of important for a point we're going to make here. This is what it says. Claire is adamant about acting your wage. She's watched cycle after cycle of the store being fully staffed where workers feel they can have a life outside of the job, and then something happens to upset the balance, whether it's management changing workers' hours or a particularly demanding customer, and coworker after coworker walks out. Quote, if the job is something I can do and it's not taking from my life more than it gives, i.e. the money, then uh, I can withstand fussy customers and strange management. I can brush all that off, she said. I do understand there are times when a job is just not worth it though. For Claire, who makes about $13 an hour in Texas, the job is still worth it, but that's because she acts her wage. She does what she's expected to do, but doesn't take on more or stretch herself more than she needs to. It's another side of quiet quitting, and it's a practice that she thinks is especially important for Gen Z. Quote, I have control over when I show up and when I leave, she said. While I'm there, I'm going to try at least to do as I'm told, but I'm not going to do a nine to nine. For Claire, acting her wage is all about keeping her identity separate from work and not feeling the need to go above and beyond. Yes, don't go above and beyond. That is indeed the timeless mantra of losers and mediocre nobodies everywhere. Now, we should first note here, as we did with the quiet quitting trend, that proponents of this approach do, in theory, make a couple of valid points. So it's true that you should have a life outside of work. It's also true that you you need to know how to set boundaries, not just at work, but in general, so you don't get taken advantage of. But both of these potential positives are ultimately neutralized, because for one thing, there is no real value in ensuring that you have extra time outside of work if you aren't going to spend that extra time doing something enriching and worthwhile. So most of these people will just go home and scroll through TikTok. That's how they're spending their extra time. We heard in the video that Veronica wanted to spend more time with her family, but the problem is that these days, Most people in their 20s don't have families. So by family, they really mean their couch, their phone, and their HBO Max subscription. And and if you have to choose between putting some extra hours in at work and staring like a zombie at a glowing screen for six hours until you fall into a drooling stupor and eventually drift off to sleep, I think the former is often the better choice. Second, setting boundaries is important But in the adult world, you need to know how to do that with a certain amount of tact and diplomacy. So the real trick is to be firm and clear and yet not obnoxious. But the problem in the video, uh, what the video is recommending is that employees act like a bunch of spoiled toddlers, turning up the smarmy level to 100, screeching like overgrown bats, and acting uh, offended that their boss would even ask them to do a little bit extra. That's what you have to understand, kids. You cannot talk to your boss that way. You might might wish that you could, but you can't. So in the real world, where your boss comes up to you, no, I'm not doing that, Susan. Get the hell out of here. This is not a movie. You can't talk to people that way. This this might be how your parents may allow you to talk to them that way. And that's why why you never learn the lesson. But in reality, you can't. That's a good way to get yourself fired in the real world. If you're only going to do the bare minimum and on top of that, you're also unpleasant, disrespectful and irritating, there's no reason for your employer to keep you around any longer than it takes to find some other warm body to sit in your chair. You have to always ask yourself that question. I know it's, we don't want to ask ourselves this question because it's a difficult question to ask, but, but you know at your job or whatever you're doing, it's like you have to ask yourself, um, what, what role am I really serving? Am, am I even needed? And if, you, if you've made yourself expendable, that's going to be a problem for you. And making yourself expendable, it's certainly one way to approach life. The other way to approach it is to strive to be indispensable, invaluable, undeniable. But that takes effort, and it takes talent. And here's an important point. It takes time. So it's quite notable that Gen Z, they're pushing you know, these trends... Um, apparently deciding that working hard, going above and beyond, running the extra mile, et cetera, is not worth the strain. The the cost-benefit calculation doesn't work out in their favor, they say. Claire, you know, the cashier, she's arrived at this conclusion. And yet Claire is is 22 years old. At the upper generational range, the oldest members of Gen Z would be like 25 or 26. How could you possibly have determined already in your mid-20s after having been in the working world for a few years at most, that there's no point in putting in extra effort? I mean, you've decided already that the the whole thing's a sucker's game? What, did, did you work one overtime shift and then decide that ambition is pointless? What did you expect? Did you think you'd put in five extra hours behind the cash register at the grocery store, and the next day they'd make you CEO of Kroger's? Well, I spent one entire whole day trying hard, and I haven't become a millionaire yet, so... I give up. That's not the way the life works. Not everything follows the rules of instant gratification. You can't always get results in 60 seconds or less. The whole world is not a microwave. It doesn't work that way. Success comes slowly and painfully and with lots of peaks and valleys valleys and frustrations and with stops and starts and with hardship. Now, speaking personally, I am now at a point in my career where I'm willing to say that I am having some success. I'm not done, not nearly, I'm not satisfied, not even close, but I've hit certain milestones that are important to me, that I've been working towards. And, uh, and so, you know, and, and that's a good thing. Do you know how long that took? Like a decade and a half, more than that actually. And you're giving up after what, three months? You're ready to quiet quit when you just quiet started last week? How fast do you think success comes? We said hard work pays off. We never said it pays off in 30 seconds. Life is not an ATM. You can't just press a button and the cash comes out. It takes longer, a lot longer, to get the payout. But here's the good news. If you're a younger person and you're just starting out in your career, the deck has been cleared. Okay, many of your peers are are, are settling for mediocrity already. They haven't even tried yet and they've decided that there's no point in trying. They, they totaled their cars on the first speed bump they came across. They ran into a mild breeze and were knocked on their asses and have no interest in getting up. This is an opportunity for you if you're not one of those people. As long as you have slightly more fortitude and a slightly better work ethic than all those other losers, you have an opportunity. You, you only need to be slightly more useful than a slug to set yourself apart. And then imagine if you went above and beyond even that. Imagine if you really tried. The stage is set for you to succeed. While your competition makes TikTok videos explaining why they aren't even trying. Let them be satisfied with a lackluster life filled with indifference and excuses. You show up early. You take the overtime. You take on the extra projects. You look to make your job more challenging, not easier. Let them be cynical about it and scoff about it. What are you even trying for? Let them do it because you're climbing the ladder while they're all crowding around the bottom rung, hoping someone pays off the rest of their student loans. One day you'll be the boss and you can gather together all of these low effort lumps on a log and tell them all at once, as I tell them now, you're all canceled. And that'll do it for today for this portion of the show. Anyway, as we move over to the members block, hope to see you there. If not, Godspeed.